Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Kate Moody. In today's episode, we're asking, how will inflation impact financial services going forward? 80s revivals have been all the rage in recent months, with Kate Bush back in the charts thanks to Stranger Things, and mullet hairstyles seeing a surge in popularity. But one 80s revival we could have done without is the return of rising inflation, driving down the value of our money while driving up the cost of everything from energy to food to travel. Inflation has plenty of real-world impact, and financial services is definitely tied up in that too, from how people manage day-to-day spending to investing for their future. So, how has inflation and the economic downturn impacted the funding available to fintechs? Can financial services swoop in and save the day? And what's the long-term impact of inflation on future products and services? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show, but first, a brief word on some things we're working on at 11FS. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Brilliant, let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests. Thank you very much for joining us who are going to shed some light on this topic. So first off, we have a FinTech Insider debut for Julia McCall, Chief Product Officer at Chetwood Financial. Julia, welcome to the show. Could you give our listeners a a brief introduction to you and Chetwood, please? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Kate. So I'm Julia, CPO, as you said, um, also employee number one, very important at Chetwood. Uh, that's my that's my only claim to fame, I think, that, that I have. Um, and Chetwood is a you know, fully regulated bank, um, but a very different business model, which is why many of you may not, may not have heard of us. So we create really targeted products, and we do that for underserved segments of the market. So we essentially have a multi-brand, multi-product strategy. Uh, four live products out in market today, so two lending products, a credit card, and a fixed-term savings account. Um, and really, uh, we're a very purpose-led business, so our whole philosophy is about making customers better off. So when we're searching for those segments, it's about finding segments where we ultimately believe we can do a better job. Uh, and then my role is to make sure that we deliver the products and the customer experience, the proposition that goes alongside that to, to really bring that to life and then deliver the results for the business on the back of it. We've actually just launched our Banking as a Service offering in the last 12 months or so. And you may have seen that we've also acquired Jubota, who are our sister tech company. So plenty happening at Cherwood. Yeah, sounds very busy. Uh, and yeah, making customers better off, I guess, is, is going to be keeping you particularly busy at the moment. So really looking forward to getting your perspective on, on everything we're experiencing. So thank you. Um, it's also a FinTech Insider debut for Mike Carter, Head of Platform Lending at Innovate Finance. Welcome to the show, Mike. What should our audience know about you and Innovate Finance? Thanks, Kate. So Innovate Finance is the UK industry body for the fintech sector. We represent all fintech verticals on policy issues with government and also abroad. And we provide a wider forum for the the fintech industry in the UK. So I look after the lending businesses within our membership base. We have over 20 platforms who are members of Innovate Finance and they're lending to SMEs, lending to consumers, very much with a digital focus. And I also oversee our work on investment, and we report half yearly on the VC investment into the fintech industry, and we participate in policy issues to, to try and help further investment into UK fintech. 
And finally, I'm also uh, exec chair of the Money Platform, which is a peer-to-peer consumer lender. Awesome. I'm already very excited to pick your brain. So looking forward to getting stuck into this with you. And last but definitely not least, we also have a FinTech Insider debut for James Bryce Lind, Head of Strategic Development at Minna Technologies. Thanks for joining us, James. What can you tell us about yourself uh, and about your company? Uh, thanks and great to meet you, Kate. Um, long-time listener, first-time speaker. I've actually always wanted to say that line. Um, <laughs> I'm a reformed finance guy. I moved over from Australia three years ago to work specifically in the London fintech scene, focusing in on open banking. Um, I was fortunate enough to join the team at Credit Kudos uh, around two years ago and was able to learn from some of the brightest minds in the industry and help push that proposition forward to where we saw success earlier this year. I think my journey has now taken me across to MENA Technologies, where I'm contributing to the UK and Australian sales team. And MENA's goal in life is ultimately to help consumers manage their subscriptions and their expenses by offering an embedded subscription management solution, selling to banks and fintechs, helping their consumers get control, transparency and clarity over where they're spending their money on subscriptions and giving them direct actions as to how to self-serve and consolidate and control those from within the banking app. So a really interesting time for us with everything that's going on with the rising cost of living. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining us. Great to have you all here. Let's dive in. So we're going to start this chat by looking at all of this from the lens of funding. So firstly, a quick fire question for, for you guys at Panoi. What are the three words you would put forward as the causes of the current rising inflation? Uh, I'm going to throw Mike under the bus first, Mike. So I would say supply chain and Ukraine. Okay. Julia? Okay, COVID, uh, Brexit and quantitative easing, probably. <laughs> Brilliant. And James, round us off. Yeah, look, it's got to be a mixture of those ones. I think logistics, uh, food, and energy. Okay, so a complex, complex picture, lots of different factors at play. Um, but, you know, obviously our audience are, are concerned about fintech, facing on fintech. So I'd love to get your perspectives on you, what we think those short-term consequences of a downturn are in fintech funding. You know, what, what are we seeing in fintech funding, Mike? Well, I, th- I think we are starting to see a little bit of a slowdown. And I think the, the data that we're going to publish shortly will, will probably show that even though the first half was strong, there's a bit of a slowdown coming. But I think members are fairly uh, sanguine, actually, when they when they think about this. If, if you recall, the fintech industry largely grew up after the financial crisis and hadn't traded through a downturn until COVID hit. And so COVID was actually the first big challenge for the for the whole sector. And the sector actually dealt with it pretty well. Most, most platforms um, changed their business models and they had to do it very quickly and they had to keep on changing it because the environment kept changing both economically and socially. Um, and we've come out of the other side with most platforms still intact. Now we're facing high inflation, the potential for a recession. In fact, most of the members I talked to are expecting that we will tip into a recession later this year if interest rates continue to rise. But they've just been through an extremely difficult period through COVID. And so I think they're up for the challenge of how to deal with, uh, with, with the next recession, albeit it's come along much quicker than anyone had expected. Okay. And Julie, I suppose, what does it, what does it look and feel like from your perspective? You guys uh, are out there, I guess, are you, are you fundraising at the moment or have you had that experience recently? What, what's your perspective? Yeah, we're fully funded. Um, so we made a decision quite early on to try and get a long-term investor. And I, and I think really... You know, the impact at the moment really does depend on your situation from a fundraising perspective. So, you know, clearly, if you are out in market, 
we're already seeing many businesses lay off um, and start to pull back. So and you can see those those impacts out in the market. I think for us, we're relatively comfortable. You know, COVID obviously was was kind of a, a, a an unexpected <laughs> situation for everyone to find themselves in. But we're, you know, we're with the same investor that we were with throughout. So. On a personal note, I think we feel really confident. Um, I think from a sector perspective, we're conscious that you know there's bound to be impacts here in terms of those businesses that are looking to get investment and funding. And we've seen that, I think, in some of the downturns in valuations and then in the, the layoffs of employees too. Yeah, I think you know, as of July the 1st, uh, there'd been some 3,709 employees, excluding crypto companies, uh, that had been laid off across 41 layoff events in the second quarter. Um, a coin to analysis by a guy called Roger Lee, who runs a very cheerful sounding website called layoffs.fyi. Um, so yeah, a lot of a lot of shifts and, and changes happening in this sector. Um, James, you know, how do you think those that scale of layoffs impacts day-to-day operations in some of these fintechs? You know, it's really interesting because if you say from a day-to-day perspective, you've got to look about the morale across the firm and what it comes down to is how the layoffs are executed. You know, is there understanding across the company that this is for the greater good? And of course, how is it executed? You know, there are some good cases where things are dealt with personally and explained properly. And there are some bad cases where, for instance, it's just done via video. So it's all about how the company itself manages their people and culture aspect and how they deliver that news that really helps the longevity of that company and the morale for the industry. Yeah, I think we've had some some real horror stories. I think across across the world about somehow some companies have got that got that really wrong. So I agree that's that's a really key factor in this. Um, obviously, you know, we've got lots of different fintechs at different stages of growth and development and scaling. Um, I'd be interested, Mike, to get your perspective. What sizes of companies do you think are going to be most impacted by this uncertainty in the funding environment? So, so I think that for companies that are you know, some years um, into their life where they have a proven business model, if they need to raise capital, they'll be able to do that. They will have a, a stable of investors who want to see the business continue to succeed and uh, and they will um, fund or cornerstone a, a fundraising. And so the, the question for them is how much and at what price? And you know, it's, it's inevitable that prices will come down, but private Markets are no different to public markets. You know, we've seen the Nasdaq's off 30% since its peak last year. Bond markets are cyclical. All, all markets are, and private, private equity should be no different in, in that respect. And so valuations will come down. And if you're looking to fund, well, your existing shareholders want as little dilution as possible. And so you're going to raise a smaller amount to minimise dilution. And that then takes you into the, the piece that um, we were talking about earlier, and that's around um, redundancies and other actions in the business to save cash so that the business can fund its plan from a combination of slightly less capital than they wanted and having to save cash. At the smaller end, I think that's probably where the squeeze will come. So for businesses that have not yet got a proven business model or, or just starting out, it will be a lot more difficult to, to find funding because they don't have a set of backers who are already supporters for the company. And those businesses, I think, will have to uh, you know, d- delay raising funding or find find other means to, to to keep going. I think they'll have fewer cost to cut as well because they'll have a much smaller cost base. So it'll it'll be more difficult for the for the startups and seed stage companies. Mm, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Julia, what's what's your perspective? I think it's I think it's an interesting continuation of what we've seen over the last few years, which is you know a number of the kind of early fintech businesses and, and challenger banks 
have started over the last probably five to seven years to to think more about what the business model needs to be, what their business model needs to be in order to be commercially viable ultimately. And so I think, you know, to Mike's point, really those those early stage companies are going to have to be very focused on that, I think, in order to, you know, continue to to see funding over the next 12 months. But I also think there are a number of larger companies who as Mike referenced, may well find that their valuations are, are hampered if they can't articulate that story with real confidence. And I think, you know, as we as we go into a very different interest rate period, many of these fintechs haven't been through anything similar other than perhaps COVID to some extent. Um, and how they react and respond to that will will definitely be, you know, a really important marker, I guess, for fundraising in the future. Absolutely, and I think I'm just hot off the fre- hot off the press. You know, we've seen that Klarna recently completed a a down round, which saw their valuation drop by eighty five percent to a still fairly fairly substantial six point seven billion. But you know, obviously, given the, the scale out before, you know, that's that's a huge piece of news for the market. Um, James, I guess from the media perspective, you know, how are you guys thinking about this this environment? Yeah, from a macro perspective, building on Mike's point, you know, the, the Nasdaq is down thirty percent, but I think that the closer comparator to the, the the sector that we work in is the hyper growth or pay for anything growth stocks the Nasdaq has, which are more likely to be down ninety percent. And I think the Klarna valuation more accurately reflects that dynamic of the market rather than the Googles of the world, which are more defensive these days. I think from our perspective, it's really important to make sure that you've got the run rate to be able to achieve what you're set out to do as a company when it comes to helping consumers, but also what you need to meet for the next funding round. And what we're seeing in the investment sphere is that there's a focus on a pathway to profitability and tied to revenue multiples. And that's something which ultimately holds businesses more accountable. But when you look further down the investment stage, I I do think that there's still going to be some insulation around the angel and seed stage, albeit they won't be massive seed rounds because of that ultra high net worth environment that and transparency in the industry you know founders investing in founders that's always going to be the case but when you're moving to a series a that's when it's going to be a lot harder i would say series a is the real battleground at the moment okay and i suppose i want to maybe wrap up this section by trying to think about the positives now are there we've maybe touched on some of them but you know what what do you guys see the the positive being being if any to this kind of current drop in in funding across some of those particular stages of the scaling journey? Yeah, I look at it as it's hard because everything is negative about this. So I'm And I'm always going to bias for being opportunistic and positive. So I would say there could be a consolidation of talent in early stage startups. That is less of a spread and more focused groups. You know, you might have one angel which has three deals come across their desk for a payroll API, as an example. That angel would be able to consolidate that talent rather than making three different investments. So there could be a benefit in that. Mike, Julia, any any positive takes on this? Yeah, well, I think I would, I would add to that. I mean, obviously, no one wants to have lower valuations, but if there is a benefit that can come from it is that at some point down the track when companies come to exit, um, having funded a lower valuation actually will make it easier to exit. So sometimes companies that have funded at higher and higher valuations find it difficult to exit because the exit, particularly into the IPO markets, is difficult when there's a disconnect between IPO valuations and, um, and VC valuations. So 
an, un, an unintended benefit may be that the, the, the valuation that investors have come in at may make it uh, easier to exit later on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was an interesting article, I think, that Julie Moon at Finnovate wrote recently that said something difficult times have proven to motivate people to develop creative solutions. You know, Julie, are you seeing any of that? Are you seeing any of this sort of creativity coming out of, of these turbulent times? I don't think we've necessarily seen any of it yet, but I think there's lots of potential for it. I mean, clearly kind of money management and, uh, you know, kind of open banking led tools have been in existence for a period of time. We saw during COVID that the adoption of more digital banking services was you know, obviously proliferated by the by the need to be at home and, and to do that virtually. Um, and so I hope that it will drive more consumers at a kind of individual level in terms of managing their, their budgets and their way of life to actually use some of those tools that are in existence. Um, I don't I don't think we've yet started to see any of those creative solutions come out in the market on the back of the environment. Um, but I know that lots of businesses, and as included, are, are definitely thinking about, you know, how do you set ourselves up from an affordability perspective to make sure that we are looking after customers in the future? So predicting to some extent where we expect the cost increases to get to and, and making sure our lending decisions feel right for that environment. Um, and I think there'll be lots of that kind of internal innovation going on around whether it's um, comms or uh, new tools, repayment holidays, uh, breathing periods being put into place uh, just to make sure that we're doing the right thing by consumers who are in financial difficulty. So less creativity, I think, so far, but I'm hopeful for it. Okay, well, let, let's hang on to that hope. I mean, I'm keen to to move us on slightly. I said, yeah, to think about what fintech and financial services could do to help with inflation and that ensuing cost of living crisis. So you know, what can fintechs and financial services do to support customers as costs are rising, um, James. Oh God, you're opening the door to me talking about how open banking might be able to help consumers. It's I might close it if you get too excited, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point where all product managers hate me because I just make up solutions. I think when you look at open banking, it, it, the first question is how do you get it connected? What's the value exchange that you're demonstrating to the consumers to get them to connect it? On the back end of that, then you've got all the weird and wonderful ways that you can help them. So to use a checkwood example, if you've made a lending decision through open banking, yes, you've been able to get greater visibility on the creditworthiness of that applicant. But in the back end, in an environment like what we're in right now, if you still have your open banking connected, which the enduring consent is now opening the door to, you'll be able to actually get ahead of them and help them. If you see their financial health deteriorating, you can preemptively offer them a repayment holiday or do anything in your you know in your power to help soften the blow of what they're going through so there are so many benefits from us with at technologies it's quite simple you know we offer a clear-cut solution to be able to identify and then take action on the subscriptions that you have i know every single one on this call in fact probably every single listener here has one or two subscriptions, which it's a nice to have when it comes to they should just be cancelling it because they never use it. It might be Disney. It might be the fact Stranger Things just finished and they're not interested in having Netflix for the next three months. So for us, it's a direct means, but there are so many indirect ways as well that open banking and fintech can help. It's the main cause of marital strife in my household at the moment, arguing about which which subscriptions are necessary. So I think you guys maybe need to branch out into some sort of marriage counselling on the side because it can be definitely a, a stressful topic. Um, you know, Julia, I think you've written that the focus of Intex is to improve 
financial health, the financial health of, of their valued customers. So what is that? What, what do you mean by that? Is that a focus that you think fintechs are ready for? How would you define that? Yeah, how do I define it? I think I think financial health for me is, you know, it's all about thinking about the day-to-day things that we can do to help consumers manage their money. And that can be across savings. Um, clearly the market's changed quite dramatically on savings over the last few months in terms of rates. But frankly, for the most majority of people in the UK, the primary concern is, is budgeting and essentially making sure they can honour those monthly commitments. Um, and I think I think there are an increasing number of businesses, you know, we work really closely with ClearScore who are branching out into loads of extra services that are very targeted around really just trying to drip feed educational prompts and and hints and tips into people's lives. So, you know, not expecting people to go and read books of information online or use tools that take forever because we know that people won't do that, but actually just trying to find ways that you can embed those really helpful tips along the way and that's something you know we we created the live lend reward loan and and that's a product that reduces the rate of the loan over time as the customer's credit score improves and we did that alongside clear score because we really wanted to incentivize and encourage people to manage their score and i think it's for me it's always going to be in that space of embedding into people's life rather than expecting them to sort of step outside and do something because we frankly just never get to that stuff and I think for me that, you know, the absolute crux of this is really understanding your target market, knowing where they are at the moment, you know, how are they being impacted? How do they think they will be impacted over the next few months? We do so much primary customer research. And without that, it's really hard actually to put ourselves directly in the shoes of our customers. So I think that's that should be at the heart of all of the financial health kind of initiatives. And I know Certainly with some of the fintechs like ClearScore, it absolutely is. Um, but I would like to see more of the industry taking that approach. I'm a massive customer research nerd myself. So that is that is music to my ears. Mark, I know that you guys at Innovate Finance have also talked about financial, financial health. What does it look like to you? Like, How do you guys see it playing out? I, mean, I, th- I think what's very interesting here, and there are quite a few apps and businesses out there that have financial planning, financial data embedded in them um, a lot of the new banks have really good data showing your expenditure etc and it's, it's been i think it's been a nice to have so far but when inflation has been very low economy has been stable put covid aside for a second but generally personal finances have been fairly stable um, people probably haven't really made that much use of it because things don't change very quickly now that's all going to change if you look, if you look at the um, bank of england forecasts after about three years, inflation compounded over, over that time would have added about 20% to everyone's cost base. And that's that's really material. And this is over a few years. So it's, there's, a, there's a real relevance and need for uh, these the kind of financial planning apps and expense management apps that, that are already out there and for people to actually start using them and perhaps for, the, for, the, for them to start making themselves a little more useful, providing more alerts. But it, it really is using the data. COVID obviously caused many more transactions to become digital. Many more shops started taking um, cards when they didn't before. So when you look at a bank statement, it's not full of cash withdrawals. There are lots and lots of transactions on there. And I'm a, uh, you know, we're a big enthusiast of open banking and finance, and I am personally too. At the money platform, we have an open banking credit uh, loan product. Um, and uh, you know when you when you download when you get a download of someone's bank statement for a year, it's got about two thousand lines on it with transactions. 
no one is going to sit down and analyze 2,000 lines to work out where they should be saving money. But that's exactly where fintech should be coming in. You know, the data is there. Fintech should be there to help interpret the data and, and, and make it useful for the customer. And, um, and I think you know, probably more can be done. And I'm sure many companies will start looking at this now because there is a, there's a long enough period of uncertainty coming up where people are going to need this kind of help and application. And I think uh, this, it, can, it can start to move on now in terms of using that data more usefully for the customers. Yeah, I suppose I was. My, you know, my gut is that this should be the time for those money management platforms, budgeting apps, to, to really shine and to be really adding value to customers' lives. Um, you know, we've seen some some fintechs and some apps have have success. You know, grow their base, but we haven't really seen any. I don't think have that that really transformational impact yet. Like, what, what's the missing piece? Like, what is it? What's what's going to help make that extra jump through into changing people's lives in the way that we believe that they can. Julia, you're not you're nodding. I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes back to are we really understanding what we're solving for with with these products? And you know, that for me is always research led first and foremost. And you know, if we really get under the crux of the problem we're trying to solve and design solutions for it, then I think as you say, this is, you know, there's there's absolutely a a perfect storm, if you like, um, to really go after this market right now. Um, and what will be interesting, I guess, is whether those existing apps can can use this time to really sort of start to grow and and become a habit for customers. Because I think that's the challenge, isn't it? It's are they solving a need? As Mike said, as we as we look over the next few months, that need is going to become more of a problem. Lots of customers currently still have a little bit of savings buffer from COVID, but that's not going to last long. We know that from the predictions we've seen on cost increases and, and average salaries and month left and money left at the end of the month. So I think, yeah, what, what will be interesting is how those companies that are already out there really start to pivot their products towards the exact needs that we're seeing now. And as I say, using customer research to really understand it. Um, and then I think it becomes a habit-based problem and, and then it's about if the app can prove that it's adding value, if it can prove that it is helping people to make savings, to better budget, to forecast, then people will start to adopt it. But you have to really prove the use case and, and start to become something that people use on a regular basis to do that. And open banking, I think, you know, is really interesting here, particularly for current account offerings. And, you know, that is that is one of those transactional products that all customers use on a frequent basis if we can embed more into those places that customers are going to manage their money then that will obviously that obviously stands a, a, a kind of a better um a better chance from that habit perspective i think as well mm, um one thing i'd love to i suppose touch on quickly before we have to move on i suppose is we've talked i think about the positives about you know, hopefully trying to help people manage their money but you know when that goes wrong obviously it'd be good to think about the other side of the coin you know when, when people get into debt and how debt collection works, you know, that's a huge part of part of the financial world. Um, do we need to see a rethinking of that, James? Yeah, I just wanted to build on the last point as well and sort of put some stats behind it because I completely agree with everything that Julia said. The time is now. The current environment is creating that compelling event that's going to be driving people who need 
visualization over what they're spending. And that's ultimately what PFM is. You know, the number of UK households facing acute financial strain has risen by almost 60% since last October. You know, that's a level greater than seen in COVID times. You know, that's 4.4 million people in serious financial difficulties. And it's all driven by food inflation as well as energy. You know, these are all staples that people need. So there's real trouble. You know, talking about what Mike said around categorization and visualizing what this what the spend is, you know, I personally found myself in debt at some point in my life. And it wasn't until I printed that credit card statement off, went through it with a highlight, that I realized that I was spending eight hundred bucks a, a month on Deliveroo that I didn't need to be spending. So that's the true value of PFM, but I don't think the demand has been there for it. But to build into what we were saying earlier, PFMs find it so hard to actually monetize their solution. Their approach to the market is if you build it, they'll come and then we'll figure out how to monetize later. So it actually puts them in a really tough situation at the moment. And that's where MENA is able to come in and help because we offer a clear-cut way in which PFM solutions can clearly monetize their service by not just having insights or actionable insights, but Actions. I think that's the three life cycles of what I'd say PFMs need to be offering. But I think there's also a really interesting proposition on the flip side of that. If you're a Henry, as an example, where you are financially secure, how can PFM help you monetize there? And I was talking to an extremely bright chap, I'm friends with Angus Clacker, and I asked him what he saw five years down the track. And he said, if there is a way in which you can combine PFM with robo-advice and somehow straddle the line between personal and general advice, then you're meeting both sides of the PFM need, the wealthy, and the people who need financial support. Um, That's my piece on PFM. Um, Moving over into debt collection, I think it's really interesting. I actually worked closely with Indebted as they went through their FCA application process as as a Credit Kudos customer. And they're doing some great things. Again, speaking from personal experience, the toughest thing about being in debt, and everyone knows they're in debt, they see those notices, is facing up to it and finding a solution to get out of it. And indebted automates that process and in some cases means that you don't need to do it by speaking to someone, which ultimately is a bit of a bit of a punch in the ribs, you know, it hurts the pride. So I think solutions like indebted are, are really necessary and helpful in this situation for those who might be going through consolidating or handling debt, which they're in. Absolutely. I would definitely recommend if, if our listeners haven't come across it, have a look at what the guys at Indebted are doing. It's some, some really interesting approaches to the world of debt, so check them out. We're just going to take a quick pause here, back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back. Okay, while things may look tough now, I'd like to look ahead to the long term. Um, see if we can find some some optimism in there as well. So 
starting maybe on the less optimistic side, you know, how how long do we think the effects of this current inflation rise are going to be felt in the wider in- industry? Um, Mike, what's what's your Mystic Meg approach on this? <laughs> well, um, without wishing to sound too pessimistic, I think this is going to run for a couple of years. And um, again, if you, if you look at the, the, the Bank of England reports, there's their expectations that energy prices stabilise. They're not even saying energy prices are going to come down. They're just saying they're going to stop going up. And and also unclear is whether salary rises are baked into all of this because as inflation continues for, for this year and next year, then obviously employees are going to want to have pay rises to help mitigate that. And that will then start to get baked into output prices. Some companies can pass on those salary rises and, and some can't, but that potentially will continue to, to stoke inflation. So I fear that for, for a couple of years, we're going to have uh, going to have this uh, uncertainty as to how this is going to start to come back down again. Okay, so it's not it's not going to be over tomorrow. So this is, we're in this for the short to medium haul at least. Yes, I think so. Okay, so, I mean, James, you know, how, how do we think this will, this, this will shape the products and services that companies decide to launch? Are you guys seeing changes in behaviours now? Yeah, how is that impacting your roadmap going forwards? Yeah, it's a great question. So interestingly, with our existing product set, when you look at our cancel feature, we've seen uh, the broader UK market in particular responding to this rising cost of living with an increase in the amount of subscriptions, which they're taking actions on with cancel. You know, month on month, I think feature utilisation is around 27%. But what that means on the flip side is that we're saving the users through our banking partners on average around £250 per year, which means that through our life cycle, we've saved now over £300 million in savings for our consumers. But when it comes to adapting our product to help meet the future needs of customers or consumers, should I say, it's about finding out how we can solve your marital issues Uh, Kate, you know, you don't have to essentially cancel your Netflix. You could just pause it as an example. You know, these are the things that we're building to help just make management of the subscription lifecycle a lot easier and a bit more flexible. That's that's a big relief. Yeah, it was my wedding anniversary yesterday and I was worried it might be the last if if the Netflix dilemmas are ongoing. Um, Julia, obviously we're we're seeing, what do you think we'll see you guys have got an interesting balance in your portfolio in terms of your, your savings offerings, things like that. Do you think we'll see more savings products rather than investment apps? You know, that's always been a bit of a balancing act between savings investments in the market. How, how do you think this ongoing pressure on consumers will influence roadmaps? Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've, we've certainly seen savings prices rocket and they are very volatile. Um, you know, we've, we're lucky that our platform actually enables us to make really quick pricing changes because we've needed to. Um, you know, it's literally sometimes changing three, four times a day in terms of people going after those top spots on, on rates. So I think, you know, we're conscious that, as you say, as rates increase, clearly you bring in a different demographic and a broader demographic to savings who are more prepared to put their money in cash savings products which is interesting in itself. I think we're also seeing quite an interesting trend on the B2B side, not necessarily specifically on savings, but but actually in that B2B space, many businesses are looking at how they can embed finance to generate new revenue streams. And I think a lot of that has come out of, you know, on the back of COVID in part and, and some businesses 
I guess, waking up to the fact that their business model was fairly susceptible to the macro environment. Um, and other businesses actually just thinking about how they can build better customer loyalty and engagement, but through financial services. And I think that's a really interesting space because we're currently working with some big brands around how we can effectively take the balance sheet risk, which they absolutely don't want to take in the current climate, but help them to set up and build products under their brand for their customers with a view to taking that balance that back on balance sheet in the future as the environment starts to shift. So I think, yeah, I think it's really interesting both on the consumer side and the B2B side. And we're, we're definitely seeing, I guess, a change in strategy and back to the earlier point we made, a real focus on the commercial business models that sit beneath it. Mm, absolutely. Um, Mike, you know, for your your members, you know, what are you guys hearing in terms of the decisions they're making and regarding that, the products and services that they're offering? Are they changing track? Are they going deeper into their, their current offerings? How, how, are they feeling, how are they thinking about this? Well, quite a few businesses already had a, a stable of new products that they, that they were planning. And so I think it's a question of priorities in terms of what they're going to, to bring out. And that partly will be driven by a cash flow back to where we were at the, at the beginning. Do they have the capital to launch new products or to, to fund new products? And it'll be partly be driven by the, by the demand, as we've been talking about, where, where do consumers want to see demand? So I think there's a certain amount of evaluation going on currently as to what are the right priorities in terms of which products are launched to, to meet the needs, given that the given the funding constraints that are going to come off in the next couple of years. Absolutely. And you know, one thing I'm keen to think about is you know, we've, I think we've, we're all focused on the UK primarily, or Australia, obviously James represented us as well. But you know, what do we think the long-term impact is going to be on, on emerging markets? You know, according to the IMF, I think you know, news about high US inflation drives US interest rates up. But you know, there is a view that sometimes this can actually be fairly benign for emerging markets. Um, you know, VC patterns actually in some markets are staying strong. So what, what are your forecasts for, for emerging markets? James, you got any, any hypotheses here? Oh, yeah. Look, it's a tough one. I think if you go back to the economics of it, emerging markets defined by, you know, <laughs> not being developed. But ultimately, you know, they're still building a lot of their society. So they've got really high growth rates. Look at China 10 years ago, still in the 8% of the GDP growth. So that should be defensible compared to when you look at a developed market, which will be seeing a recession, which by the way, you know, if you look back to Volcanomics back in the 80s, you know, we are looking for a long-term move. I do agree with Mike there, but I think there is a defensibility in the fact that it's not all, it's not as mature a market and therefore there's more growth and optimism to be found there, particularly if they're not intertwined with a larger Western partner. Okay, Mike. Who, which markets are you most interested in? What, what are you keeping your eye on? I mean, I mean, I would say, you know, as a general rule, that they have a more volatile economic um, outlook any, anyway. So even though we're going into the, this current uh, economic recession globally, a lot of countries have had to withstand, you know, quite major economic shocks anyway. So what we're looking at in the West may not look like such a big challenge in emerging markets. You know, I was hearing yesterday, they were talking about Sri Lanka yesterday and the issues there and how their currency is devalued 60% against the dollar. The Turkish lira, I think, was down 50% against the dollar last year. Argentina has had all sorts of devaluation um, with its own currency. El Salvador's been trying to adopt Bitcoin because of its economic problems. 
So a lot of emerging markets have had much bigger issues than uh, than, I, than I think we're facing. So I, I think they they're going to be less concerned about um, an inflation shock compared to other things that are, that are going on. I think the, the bigger issue for them, again looping back to to where we came in, is around investment, and a lot of investment into into emerging markets does come from um, from the West. You know, there are a lot of emerging market funds, both uh, for equities for VC for debt, and and that also is cyclical, like all other markets, and it does you know move very quickly in and out. And I heard recently that you know a lot of funds have been withdrawn out of emerging market. Um, I think it was debt funds recently, and so it's inevitable that they are probably going to struggle to get the, the capital that they need, probably more so than in in the UK or other other Western countries. And uh, it's, it, it's very difficult for them to to deal with that, and they just have to sort of wait until investors in the West calm down a bit and decide it's time to, to go back into those parts of the world. Absolutely. Um, conscious of time, I think one thing I'd like to get all your perspectives on before we sadly have to wrap up is, you know, we've covered lots in, in this conversation. It's been I mean, really great to get all of your thoughts. I suppose if you were starting from a, a blank piece of paper and you had to give one piece of advice to someone looking to create something new to help tackle this crisis what would your advice be julia what, what would your one piece of advice be you probably know but customer research right go out go out and talk to your customers understand the need and really try and build solutions that solve the needs don't get lost in the gimmicks or the user interface get right down into what need are you solving for and, and make sure you really understand that before you start any of the other work because um, i think that's where people miss a step and it's clearly critical Amen. Uh, James, what would what would your advice be? Yeah, I would say build off the momentum already displayed by some partners in the open banking space. So, you know, whether it's a Bud or a Tink, the work that they've put in to get their categorization engines to where they need to be right now is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So if I was starting out in this space, say in a PFM app, I would be looking to leverage the work that they'd done and add value on top of those rails. Really interesting. Um, Mike, you get to round us off. <laughs> um, my, my feeling is that, is that businesses need to, need to focus on um, continuing to build the, the trust that their customers have in them. Because I think as the trust builds, then the adoption of the, uh, the solutions that are being offered are more likely to be taken up. I mean, when you look a few months ago, um, you know, Martin Lewis on one of his programs told everyone, with the rise in energy prices, that they should go and report their electricity uh, usage and their gas usage at the end of March because bills are rising and they needed to do that straight away. Otherwise, the first quarter usage will get charged at second quarter prices. And apparently the next day, the sort of websites went down on all the electricity companies because half the country trusts his advice and, and, and took it up. And if if a fintech business can, can you know, aim to get those kind of levels of trust, then when it comes out with an app that says, you know, we'll tell you how to manage your money. They'll get a fabulous response. You know, I think the consumers need a need a nudge, but they need a nudge from a from a trusted source. And um, businesses are new; the brands aren't very well known. So it's really important to try and build that trust, and then and then consumers will really want to use their apps. Yeah, Martin Nurse has an absolutely incredible platform. I'm sure you know, each each market where we speak to, I think there's always that equivalent figure. But you know, they they have huge huge power, and we'd love it, yeah, as you say, to see see some of the fintechs be able to have that level of impact as well. Well, 
Thank you so much. That wraps up today's discussion. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? I'm sure they'll want to after our discussion today. So, So, Julia. Yeah, so it's at Julia McCall across social for me um, or Chetwood.co for our website. Um, we're also on social and Chetwood, so at Chetwood FL um, or as at your voter platform, depending which, whether you're interested in B2B or B2C. Brilliant. So something for everyone. Mike, what about you? The Innovate Finance website is the best place and you can get to everything from there. Brilliant. Uh, James? Yes, for me, it's meantechnologies.com. You'll be able to find everything about us. And if you wanted to contact me personally, it's james.brycelind, without the hyphen, at mina.tech. Without the hyphen, very important to clarify. So, um, And you can find me, Kate Moody, on LinkedIn or at k8moody on Twitter. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye.